Hi, and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast of Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We're glad you've tuned in for today's sermon. My name is Ryan, and I'll be your host today. If you're listening to Stony Creek Radio for the first time, this series begins on episode 16. As we study Ecclesiastes together in this series, Chasing the Wind, we're going to be wrestling through some of life's biggest and most important questions. And our prayer is that we'll see together how God brings meaning to everything under the sun by means of His Son. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump right into today's sermon. All right, Ecclesiastes 1, we're going to be starting in verse 12, we're going to be looking to the end of chapter 2 today. Really appreciate you reading that, Steve. Really appreciate the opportunity just to reflect on the words of the scriptures. And I pray that as you heard it read through you, that you saw common themes and common phrases that were mentioned several times as he is sharing. Many times he mentions a striving after the wind. It's like chasing the wind. He was looking for all of these things that would make him happy. And yet it was like striving after the wind. And the reality is we all want to be happy. There's not a single person in this room or that I've ever met before that has said, I don't want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy in some way. In fact, think about everything you did this morning before coming here this morning. Everything you did was probably to make you happy. The reason you ate Fruit Loops this morning was to make you happy. The reason you chose not to eat Fruit Loops this morning was that you can be happy later. <laughs> For some of you, when you came in to church this morning to make you happy, you stopped at Tim Hortons. For others of you, your investments did well this week, and so you stopped at Starbucks instead. <laughs> But the reason by which you did that was for your own happiness. The reason I put iPads in front of my kids this morning was for my, not just sanity, but my happiness too. And put on this horrid show, Coco Melon. And if you have kids, you know what that is. If you don't, well, don't even bother looking up that. But for others of you, I know you sat down. You sat down at the kitchen table. You had a, had a coffee this morning. You had your Bible open. And you did that not because you felt obligated to do that, but you did that because that's your happy place. That makes you happy to have a coffee in front of you and the Word of God and to soak up everything the Lord wants to speak to us. Just about everything you did today and probably the rest of today is going to be to make you happy. We all long for happiness, and there's nothing wrong with that. God has given every one of us this desire to be happy. Think of everything in your life. Why do you work? Why do you earn an income? For those of you who are married, why did you choose to get married? For those of you who had kids, why did you choose to have kids? For those of you who work out, why do you choose to work out? And for those of you who don't work out, why do you choose to work out? For some of you, you choose to work out because that's what makes you happy and the feeling you're going to have afterwards of being healthier. For others of you, you chose not to work out because you're happier not to in the moment. And you're not thinking about down the road or maybe your bones just hurt too much. 
But we all do. Much of what we do, we all want to be happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. God's given us that desire. But you look across all of humanity, you look across history, and you see there are so many different wells that people run to to try to find happiness. People look to all kinds of different things. It doesn't matter what culture you are in. The specifics are going to look a little bit different depending on the culture you're in. But every one of us go to certain wells, certain things, in hopes that we will have that kind of lasting happiness. And Solomon is no different. We have just heard that read for us. His, his search, his exploration of something that will give him this kind of lasting happiness. Something that's going to satisfy that deepest longing that he has in his heart. And he shares all the places he looked for it. My daughter, Star, she's one years old. She's almost two. And uh, her photo, I put her photo on the screen just so you could all say, ah, if it shows up. There it is. That's my daughter, Star. You'll see that she has glasses. And uh, the optometrist explained to us that uh, she really can't see clearly beyond one or two feet in front of her. And so we didn't know that for the first several months of her life. And uh, we remember when he first got her glasses and she put them on and she started looking wide-eyed at everything like it was the first time she had ever seen things clearly and looked at Yvonne and looked at me. And it was one of those kind of heartwarming moments that, you know, we wished that we had on camera, but at the same time, just enjoyed it in the moment of seeing her look around and see everything for the first time. You'll see the one lens is pretty scratched up. And the reason for that is, is she, she mostly likes to wear them because she can see better, but there's times where she takes them off and she'll bite off the lens. So use her teeth and then take that lens off with her teeth and then leave them wherever she is. And, and those of you, you can't really tell on the screen, but that lens is about the size of a loony. And if you're joining us online from outside of Canada, the loony is a funny word for our $1 coin, but that's what it is. It's about this big. It's very little. And so imagine now finding something this little somewhere around our house. Most of the time we catch her in the act when she's doing it, we find them. But sometimes she'll come from wherever she was. And I mean, she's climbing into cupboards. She's climbing into everything that she can get open. She's in right now. And there are times when she comes back and all of a sudden you see there's a lens missing or there's two lens missing. Now imagine trying to find a clear loony somewhere in your house. Maybe your house is tidy. Ours is not. With six kids, it's not tidy. Hardly ever. And there's times where we have spent all day searching for this thing. And finally just said, listen, we can't find it. We'll just kind of passively go about our lives and hopefully it will turn up. And we did that several months ago, about two months ago, this happened. We spent most of the day we're looking for it. We're kind of cleaning up as we go. Can't find it anywhere. So we said, just leave it passively. We'll find it at some point. We are sure it will turn up. And sure enough, the next day it turned up. But it turned up in the van in her car seat. So where we were looking the entire day for it, we couldn't find it because it wasn't there. We were looking everywhere for that lens inside the house, only to discover later that even though we were turning the house upside down looking for it, we couldn't find it because it just simply wasn't to be found there. And the same is true with what Solomon is going to share with us in his search for lasting Happiness. 
that he looked at all things under the sun. You heard Steve read that earlier. So this is an exhaustive search of everything in this world. He searched for it, looking for lasting happiness. And what he is going to say to us is this. He couldn't find it because it wasn't there. It wasn't to be found under the sun. Later on, what we discover is it's only found under the sun. S-O-N, sun. So where does he look? We're going to look at five different areas. There's a number of different ways you can break down all of the areas that he looks at. I've broken them down today in five areas. There's notes if you have your bulletin. Put them on the screen as well. But the first well that he looked to, hoping to find something that would satisfy, verse 16, he says this, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the winds. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more knowledge I got, the sadder I became. The first place he looks to is knowledge and learning. He drinks deeply of this well and commits himself to learning and to knowledge and to growing in his understanding of the world and how it works. And that's a noble pursuit. In fact, later on, he is going to say to us that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly and more gain in light than in darkness. So he's not saying that that's all done in vain, that there's nothing ever to be valued in doing that. But if you're looking to knowledge, if you're looking to a couple of letters after your name, with an education and learning and growing in that area, if you're looking to that to find fulfillment, to find meaning, to find wholeness, to find lasting happiness, you're going to be disappointed. And he gives us two reasons why, why you're going to be disappointed. The first one in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, what's lacking cannot be counted. In other words, there's always more to figure out. You're not going to have all of the answers. You're never going to have all of the answers. We are limited beings. We cannot fully understand how the world works. And then the second reason he gives is because more knowledge gave him more sorrow, more frustration. Understanding how life works and having a greater understanding of all the things of this world and all the injustices in this world, frankly, just sometimes leads to more sorrow. There's a reason why they say ignorance is bliss. Sometimes it is. So he concludes, knowledge and learning, though are not bad things, there's value in them. You are not going to find purpose. You're not going to find lasting happiness, significance in that pursuit. The second well he runs to is kind of, I call just the simple pleasures of life. He mentions laughter, wine, and music. In my heart, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, In my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And then later on in verse 8 of chapter 2, he mentions music. He mentions singers that he gets all around him and, and, and looks to that well for that lasting happiness. So he's speaking in terms of the simple delights of life, of laughter of wine, 
of, of music. For laughter, Solomon opens up his house to all the greatest comedians. He brings Jim Gaffigan in. He gets some Christian humor, brings Tim Hawkins in, because Tim Hawkins is actually funny. <laughs> and he turns his home into kind of comedy central and tries to laugh his way to a better life, laugh his way to this kind of lasting happiness. And see how he concludes? He says, it is mad. That pursuit is a mad pursuit. That pursuit, what use is it? Now, laughter is great. In fact, the Proverbs speak of laughter in a very positive way. Laughter, we know from science, is even good medicine. Laughter gives you a dopamine hit. It's this kind of neurotransmitter that essentially helps you deal with stress. So laughter is a good thing. Some of you, you could benefit from a little more laughter in your life. And you know who you are, Eeyore. Laughter also, it was fascinating. I just kind of did a quick search on what laughter does. It increases your immune cells. It also increases infection-fighting antibodies in your body and can actually produce antibodies that fight off sickness. So the person you know that's always sick, maybe they're just not laughing enough. Laughter triggers as well endorphins. Endorphins are the feel-good hormones that every one of us have. It kind of increases this overall sense of well-being and can even temporarily relieve pain. So laughter has merits. Laughter has value. He's not saying laughter doesn't have any of those things, but what he's saying is he drank deep from the well of laughter, and what he discovered was you cannot laugh your way to lasting happiness. The laughter at some point ends. So he tries wine. He runs to alcohol, like so many people do. And perhaps that's some of the reason for his 700 wives was getting drunk in Vegas and ending up in Graceland Chapel. <laughs> so many people run to this particular well looking for happiness. And, and we see in scriptures, wine is actually seen as a blessing of God. Abundant wine is seen as a blessing of God. The problem with wine is that Solomon discovers in this pursuit is happiness isn't found in a bottle. You can escape life through it. You can get drunk for a night, but morning comes. You get drunk for the night, you escape the problems of life for a time being. Morning comes, and what you discover is nothing has changed except for the nasty hangover that you're dealing with. Lasting happiness is not found in the bottle. So he looks to music. He hires the best singers. He gets all the best bands all around him, and they serenade him. And music is absolutely beautiful. With the exception of rap, music is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and many of you, I know that when you are feeling down, you run to your favorite music. You run to your favorite song, and you spend time in quiet, just listening to those songs, and those songs soothe you. Those songs help you. And that's beautiful. I, I'm not, I never for a second say stop doing that. Just understand that that's not the song in and of itself. That's the song pointing you somewhere else for that. But he looks for music in and of itself for lasting happiness, for that void in his life that he feels. Let me see if being serenaded by the best singers is going to fill that void, but comes comes to the conclusion that that's vanity, that it's empty. 
So he pursues next, verse 4, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens, parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he runs to next, really his work. He runs to success and accomplishment. He says he's going to kind of build this beautiful empire. If you look at the language that's used, it's like he's trying to recreate Eden. He's running to build for himself these beautiful houses and vineyards, fruit-producing trees, pools to water the trees. And then verse 9, he goes on to say, I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in all of Jerusalem. So he works hard, and in doing so, he works his way up the ladder. He makes a name for himself as a hard worker, makes a name for himself as a successful leader, as a successful businessman, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Bible speaks a lot about hard work and the importance of hard work, of being a reliable worker, of even when your boss treats you poorly, of still working hard and still even praying for them. So the Bible speaks a lot about hard work. And so Solomon isn't saying, hey, just don't bother working at all. It's all vain. But what he's saying is, stop basing your identity on what you do for work. Stop basing your identity on your career. Stop basing your identity on an accomplishment that you have had in the past. Stop basing your identity on letters beside your name or the great company that you have built up or any successes or accomplishments that you have. Put our trust and our confidence in our successes, Solomon said, it's not going to lead you to where you're hoping it's going to lead you. It's going to only lead you to more work and to more stress. It's not going to lead you to lasting happiness. Wholeness is not found in your work. Work is good, but God did not put inside work the ability to have those deepest longings in your heart fulfilled. You cannot take out of something that God did not put in. That's what we see throughout all of these lists. So he runs to next something that's also extremely popular well to run to money and possessions and fame. Second part of verse 7, he says, I had a great number of possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had gone before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. This was a guy who was famous because of how rich he was. This were today, it would be TikTok videos unending of Solomon, way more than even Elon Musk has today. People would be flocking to him because of how wealthy he was. He's famous, more, more famous, more rich, more material possessions than anyone who had gone before him. And I mentioned last week, his net worth estimated at $2.2 trillion. And Solomon comes at the end of that and says, $2.2 trillion did not buy me happiness. At the end of the day, I was still empty. The commercials you see for the lottery on TV are lying to you. They are targeted towards that desire you have to be happy that God put there, but they are trying to sell you something that will never lead you to happiness. If you look, uh, do a quick Google search. I did this this week of previous lottery winners and where they are now. What surprised me more, I expected some of this. What surprised me was the sheer number of people who came to the conclusion, I wish I never won the lottery. I was better off before. Once I won the lottery, I didn't even know who my friends were anymore. 
Let me share with you three stories. Lisa Arkind won a million dollars in Massachusetts lottery. Now, a million dollars, it seems small for a lottery, but that's a lot of money to come into. She bought a house. She went on vacations like many of the winners. Within three years, she completely ran out of all of her money. She said when asked of her lottery experience, actually, it's been rather depressing. Billy Harold Jr. won $31 million in 1997. He was a, a stock, he stocked shelves at Home Depot, Mark. <laughs> Mark works at Home Depot, if you didn't know. And so he won the lottery. He stopped stocking shelves at Home Depot. He noticed his relationships, he said, instantly changed. He said everyone wanted a piece of his money. A year after winning, his wife left him because he had wasted all of his earnings away. 1999, two years later, he took his own life. Two years prior, winning $31 million. Last one, Jack Whitaker, 2002, he won $315 million, which was the biggest single-person lottery win in history at that time. He opted for the lump sum payment, and this was mind-boggling to me, the taxes he paid. He ended up with $93 million. So taxes after $315 million, $93 million after his lump sum. Whitaker spent his money on strip, club, strip clubs, casinos, he also gave millions to charities as well. But he was a man who had a habit of leaving a large amounts of cash in his car. And twice his car was robbed. One time of, I can't even imagine this, $545,000 of cash. The other time, $100,000 of cash was taken out of his car. He showered gifts and cash on his 16-year-old granddaughter who ended up spending that money on drugs and was found allegedly murdered in her apartment. Whitaker rarely speaks to the press now, but there's many reports that say he's completely broke. When he was asked, though, at one point, what life was like before his big win, he said, it was a whole lot easier then. I would have been better off not winning. I wished I never won in the first place. The lie that I believed led me to the place I didn't want it to take me. I wished it didn't take me there. Money does not buy happiness. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he warned us against all kinds of greed. Now, the problem isn't having money. The problem is when money has you. The problem isn't having money. Money isn't bad. Money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. So many are living, believing that if they could just have, win that lottery, their life will be complete. They will be fulfilled. That longing in their heart will be fulfilled. The average home in North America has tripled in the last 50 years, the size of the home. The amount of space that a person has has tripled in the past 50 years here. And yet... You know one of the biggest, fastest growing businesses is in North America? Storage units. <laughs> Multi-million, maybe billion dollar industry in North America. Storage units that people have to store their stuff that their giant homes don't already fit. And yet I would love to hear from someone who was alive 75 years ago. 
in your experience, do you think people are happier today and more fulfilled today with all of the stuff we have than 75 years ago? I can see some heads being nodded. I think a strong case can be made that we are a society that is more miserable than ever before. Yet we have an abundance of possessions like no one else has had before, hardly. So Solomon looked to his wealth. He says, it's all vanity. $2.2 trillion did not take me where I wanted it to take me, where I thought it would. So the next well that he looks to is another well that ultimately a lot of people run to, and that's the well of sex, sexual pleasure. And with this well, I mean, he, he jumped hard into this one, full two feet in, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, the best marriage advice I was, I've ever been given, and I was just sharing this with Howard Ireland earlier this week again, was from him, from Howard Ireland. He gave me the best marriage advice he'd ever given me. I'd asked him one time what the secret was to his happy marriage. And he said, Mark, it's simple. He didn't say it was easy. He said, it's simple. You just both have to put the other's interest ahead of your own. And imagine a marriage like that, where a husband is always putting the best interests of his wife ahead of his own. And a wife is putting her husband's best interests in ahead of her own. You do that and watch out for a dynamite of a marriage. The best marriage advice I've ever been given. I share it at just about every wedding that I do. Solomon did not heed that advice. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You don't do that for the sake of the women. You don't do that saying, I'm going to put your interests ahead of my own. You don't have a thousand sexual partners for their benefit. You do that for yourself, for your own pleasure, for your own sake. It says in verse 8, I got not only singers, I got for myself many concubines, a harem of women, the delight of the sons of man. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He ran into this heart. Then the conclusion in verse 11, after pursuing sex for lasting happiness, he says, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. It left me empty. Now, is sex good? Sex is good. Sex is God's idea. God created it. It was his design for sex to work the way that it does. Sex is not a dirty word. Though our YouTube channel might start getting flagged because I'm using the word so often, sex within the right context is what God has planned it from the beginning. It is good. I grew up in the 90s where for some reason, the evangelical church felt like the best idea when it came to youth to keep them from having sex is to say, sex is dirty, sex is bad, sex is sin, stay away from sex. And the result is a, a huge number of people from my generation who grew up in the church who struggle with that still today in their marriages because they have been taught over and over in their churches that sex is bad. And then they say, I do. They go into their marriage and they still carry that into their marriage. Even though God says, once you're married, in that context, sex is designed for one man, one woman in the context of marriage. And in that context, have fun. Enjoy it. This is what I designed it for, to bond you together, not only for procreation, but for your enjoyment too. So sex is not dirty. God created it to be enjoyed. And, but with all of God's gifts, 
Anything God-given always needs to be God-guided or it's going to lead us astray. And this is what's happened in our world. It's what happened back even in Solomon's day. Sex within the parameters that God has given to us between one man, between one woman, in the context of marriage is a good thing. You take it outside of that context and that's when the pain and the heartache and the brokenness ensues. So Solomon is not saying here, sex is bad, stay away from sex. There's nothing good about sex. The issue he's addressing is when you take a good thing like sex and make it into an ultimate thing. When you take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing, it's ultimately going to leave you into an empty thing. The prophets would take something that is good, would say taking something that is good and making it into something ultimate, that's idolatry. And Solomon would agree with that, but when Solomon comes at it from a slightly different angle, from, from as, as a wise sage, he says you take something that's good, you make it into something that's ultimate, and it's going to lead you into where you don't want it to be. It's going to lead you in a very practical level to frustration because it's not going to fulfill you the way that it is you're thinking it's going to fulfill you. It's going to leave you dry. It's going to leave you empty. So sex was never intended by God to bring you lasting happiness. So when we try to make sex the answer to the void that you feel in your life, Solomon says it's like chasing the wind. It's like grabbing hold of the wind. You're not going to find what you're looking for. So what then is the purpose of all of these good things? Solomon has gone over many good things, many wells that he has run to. If you look at that list on the screen, you see that those are good things. Nothing inherently evil about any of those things. Yet when we take those things and make them into ultimate things, this is the area that Solomon is addressing here. So what's then the purpose of these things? How, how, what Solomon is going to help us do next is change our perspective, reorient our perspective on these good things. And, and first, he says, the reason none of these are going to satisfy us is because of death. And you heard Steve talking about these things as he was reading them through. That the reason none of these are going to ultimately fulfill you ultimately is because of death. You're all, you're all going to die. We talked about that last week, that happy thought. Look to the person to your left, to the person to your right. That person's going to die. Death is going to render all of these pursuits as meaningless, as vain. Because, and as Solomon was explaining through that passage, that when you die, all of your hard work and all the stuff that you acquired is going to be passed on to someone else. And even if you were wise, the person after you might be a fool and waste away everything that you've had. And Solomon experienced that very thing with Rehoboam who followed him and the kingdom ended up being divided after Solomon. He experienced that very thing. All the things that he acquired passed on to Rehoboam who then showed himself to be an incapable leader. And the kingdom is split. So if death renders all of these pursuits in vain, then what then is the purpose of God giving us these good things on this earth? That's what Solomon's going to wrestle with. Because there's a lot of answers to that question. And we could go to a number of different places in the scriptures and look at biblical stewardship and see the good things that God has given to us, we are called to steward them well. And we can look at what that looks like. But where Solomon goes to to answer his question 
is in verse 24 and, and after that. He says God's intention for giving us these good things is that those good things will point us to his goodness and his grace. That those good things we won't look at as an end to themselves, but we'll see those good things as signposts, signposts or signs that point ultimately to his goodness and to his grace. The good things in life, the music, the laughter, the sex, the ability to learn, the even work, all of those things. All of those good things, the design of them is that they will cause us to respond in gratitude and thanksgiving to the God who gave them to us. That we'll see these things and see a God who is good, a God who is gracious, a God who is generous to bless us with these things. The result is we're going to enjoy them as God intended, not make them ultimate things, but enjoy them as the good gifts from a good father above. So Solomon's helping us reorient our perspective. He says in verse 24, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? And, and that sounds almost like the mantra, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, or eat and drink because that's all there is. But that's not what Solomon is saying. What he's saying is eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. Because that's what God has given to you as gifts to enjoy. So when we accept that we're all going to die, that, that reality can keep us from expecting too much from the good things that we pursue. These things are not bad things. These are good things to pursue. But we can expect too much out of them. And what Solomon is helping us do is to, to keep us from expecting too much out of them. We learn to pursue them for what they are themselves rather than what we, that, that, that we need them to make us happy. And so Solomon's getting at some important truths for us that the good things in this world were designed to point us to his grace and to his goodness. The good things in this world were designed not ultimately to fulfill us, but to point us to the one whom we were created for. The one whom we can have a relationship with where ultimate fulfillment is found. So these good gifts ultimately are designed to point us to him. So God is saying through Ecclesiastes here, I want you to enjoy the good things in this world. I want you to enjoy good food. I want you to enjoy good friends and good laughter. I want you to enjoy that coffee in the morning. I want you to enjoy good sex in your marriage. I want you to enjoy the ability to work and to use your hands. I want you to enjoy learning and growing in knowledge. I want you even to enjoy the football game this afternoon. I want you to enjoy these good things, but may those good things ultimately point us to the giver of those gifts, not to the gifts themselves. So let's just nail down two discoveries. They're in your notes. Discovery number one, verse 24. Nothing better than for a person to eat or drink or find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw from the hand of God. Enjoyment in life, enjoyment while on this earth can be found through gratitude for God's gifts. When we see those good gifts and we treat them as they are, as gifts of God, 
That's the proper response. Thanksgiving and gratitude. Don't try to take out of these gifts what God never put in. And then number two, that second part of verse 25, for apart from him, who can find enjoyment? Who can eat? Who can find enjoyment? So lasting joy and happiness cannot be found apart from him. Lasting happiness and joy can only be found in relationship with him. And so you can see how, I mentioned last week, Ecclesiastes points us to Jesus. And you can see in those points how Ecclesiastes is pointing us to Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we can know God and have a relationship with him. Now, I want to share with you something. Ecclesiastes was read during a particular feast. Does anyone know what feast, Jewish feast, Ecclesiastes was read at? This is what actually helps us shed light on Ecclesiastes. I mentioned last week that Ecclesiastes wasn't written by Eeyore drinking uh, Drano for breakfast like some grumpy old man. And this helps inform that. Ecclesiastes was read during the Feast of Tabernacles. That the Jewish people, when they celebrated this week-long joy-filled festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, they read aloud Ecclesiastes. Feast of Tabernacles was this joy-filled time of dancing and celebrating the goodness of God at the end of the harvest season, that God has provided what they needed for the harvest that they had. And so it was this huge celebration, joy-filled time. Now, why would God have them read Ecclesiastes in a joy-filled week of festivals? Is it to bring down their enjoyment? There's a reason for it. In the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things that they did was they set up temporary, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. And I seem to have lost my last page of notes, so I'm just going to have to remember this. They would set up temporary shelters, temporary booths, and it was a reminder for them of what God had done when they left Egypt and the, and the temporary nature of what happened when they left Egypt. So they set up these temporary shelters as a reminder that their life in the wilderness was only going to be temporary. So you can see the connection already there between Ecclesiastes and their celebration at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what is remarkable here in the Feast of Tabernacles, they had a number of different ceremonies that they participated in. And one of those ceremonies was uh, a water ceremony. And the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would fill pitchers of water from the Pool of Siloam. They would go to the altar and pour the water over the altar as a thanksgiving to God for the water he provided for their crops and asked for God to bring water next season. So it was a prayer that God would bring water in the next season. Now, you know, at the time, the Jewish people in the first century, they were uh, under the oppression, you could say, of Rome. And so part of that water ceremony was this longing for God to send the living water that the prophets spoke about to wipe out Rome. So it's messianic in nature. Much of the Feast of Tabernacles was looking forward to the Messiah that Jesus was going to bring. And that water ceremony was part of that. And it was during that feast, the last day of that feast, when Jesus stood up in John 7, and he said, I'm going to turn to it. I don't understand where that page went. He said in verse 37 of John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up 
And he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. They knew exactly what that meant. Because look at a couple verses down, people were starting to hail him as the Messiah. Is this the Messiah? They knew that that's what Jesus was saying. But in the broader context of when Jesus says this, he says this in this Feast of Tabernacles when Ecclesiastes is read. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus saying, I'm the fulfillment of that search that Solomon was making for something that would give him lasting fulfillment, lasting happiness. Jesus is the answer to that. And this, this, this verse here in verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, that word heart is so misunderstood in our culture today. That, that word heart gets thrown around. I don't even know what it means to say from the bottom of my heart anymore. Gets so confused in our culture. That particular word in some translations is translated as innermost being. And what it's talking about is the spiritual nature of our heart or the spiritual side of our heart that is empty, that is in need of filling. That there's something within us this innermost part of us that is empty and in need of filling for us to ever be happy. And Jesus says, I'm the answer to that hole in your heart. When you say that question, I just feel like I'm missing something. The answer to that question is you're missing someone. He is the one who fills that innermost being. He is the one who, through a relationship with him, gives us lasting happiness that transcends our circumstances. So Jesus is saying, I am the well that never runs dry. You want to find a well that never runs dry? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father, I thank you for these words in your word. Of all these big questions that we so often wrestle with. And I thank you that you have sent Jesus to this earth who put on flesh, who died on the cross for our sin, who rose again, that by faith in him, we can have new life with him. And in relationship with him, we can know a kind of joy that is unspeakable, that is almost un impossible to explain. That we can know a peace that transcends all understanding in relationship with him. That we can know lasting joy and happiness that transcends even death. God, we thank you for Ecclesiastes and the ways that it points us to Jesus. And I pray, Father, today that if there is anyone joining us here this morning, joining us online this morning, that's still saying that question, I just feel like there's something missing. I pray, God, that you would open their eyes through your word afresh today that that person is none other than Jesus Christ that we were made for relationship with him, that we were made relationship with our creator to know him, to be loved by him, and to be guided by him. 
Oh, Father, what a blessing it is to know Jesus. And I pray that we today, those of you, those who have found Jesus and who have discovered who he is and have come to that place of entering into a relationship with him, I pray that you would remind us afresh today that he is the greatest treasure we could ever have and we could ever know. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world can afford. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, We'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless.